0: From ABC, this is the 10% Happier podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, guys, at this point in the holiday season, mail delivery and shipping timelines may not be on your side. So for a quick and meaningful gift, send a gift subscription to the 10% Happier app to your friends and family. We're offering gift subscriptions at a discount through the end of this month. No shipping required, obviously. Your gift will be delivered directly to your email inbox. You can get a gift subscription by visiting 10percent.com slash gift. That's 10percent, one word, all spelled out, dot com slash gift. Okay, let's do today's episode. I don't know about you, but there have been many times during this wrenching year where I have made my pain even worse by adding on layers and layers and layers of self-criticism. There's a notion that is deeply ingrained in our culture, that the only way to succeed or even to survive is to liberally apply an internal cattle prod. But there is research that strongly suggests that this approach simply leads to extra anxiety and that there is a more successful approach, which is called self-compassion. My guest today has been at the very forefront of this research. She has empirically demonstrated the value of self-compassion. She's shown that it doesn't have to lead to passivity, self-absorption, or cheesiness. And as you will hear, she has practiced what she preaches in extremely difficult circumstances in her own life. All of this makes Kristen Neff, in my opinion, a figure of incalculable importance. I should say before we dive in here that we recorded this interview back in 2019 And it actually contributed to a major turning point in my own meditation practice and in my life. We're reposting it now because as we head into the new year, which is a time when many of us embark on self-improvement projects based consciously or subconsciously in self-loathing, we could all use a little kryptonite for the inner critic. So here we go with Kristin Neff. Nice to see you. Thank you for doing this. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while actually, because I'm actually writing a book about kindness right now. And I want to do a chapter about self compassion. So, okay. you are the, you are the leading expert. So, before we get to self compassion, though, I want to, I want to hear how you got interested in meditation in the first place.
1: Right. So, uh, it was my last year of graduate school. I was finishing up my PhD at Berkeley, and then basically, <laughs> my life was a mess. Right. I had gotten out of a divorce. It was a very messy divorce. I was feeling a lot of shame, um, and I was also feeling a lot of stress. Not so much about when I finish my PhD, but more after seven years of my life when I get a job. Right? The, the job market was really tight. And so I thought, you know, well, I've heard that meditation is, is good for stress. And it was Berkeley. So right down the street from me was a meditation group. I was lucky. The Probably very, right
0: down every street.
1: Right down every group. street, yeah. yeah, in Berkeley. So, that, you know, on every corner. Um, but luckily, the one I chose to go to, um, the woman leading the group, it was actually a Thich Nhat Hanh Sangha. The reason it's important is because some meditation teachers, mindfulness meditation teachers, wouldn't necessarily talk about self-compassion. Uh, but Thich Nhat Hanh, one thing that's unique about him is he really emphasizes the heart qualities of practice.
0: Especially since he's a Vietnamese Zen master, and Zen doesn't talk a lot about compassion full stop, as, as I understand right, it. Right, but he does yeah. in
1: particular, right? And so I started in his tradition, um, and the very the very first night I went, the woman talked about having compassion for yourself you needed to actively cultivate compassion for yourself as well as others. And um, so I was also learning mindfulness, but because my life was such a mess, because I was such a mess, you know, almost immediately I saw the difference it made when I turned toward myself with this kind of kind, warm, supportive attitude. I just saw my own experience. It really made a difference. So, and then I started practicing more in the insight meditation tradition. I think because I'm a scientist, it It just was a little more compatible with my um, way of approaching things, but with people like Jack Kornfield, The Path With Heart, Sharon Salzberg, Loving Kindness. So I was always always really drawn to the integration of, you might say, the spaciousness of mindfulness with the heart-opening qualities of compassion. And I was, I was fortunate because it was there at my practice from the very beginning, and that was about 20 years ago. And let me just jump so, in and
0: define terms for people because yeah, okay. some people, yes. uh, I, I just never know. We have a lot of experienced right. meditators who listen yes. but for new folks who are coming every week. Yes. So in, once you start to meditate, there are lots of ways to meditate. There are lots
1: of ways to meditate. And within yeah.
0: Buddhism, there are, I would say, at least two big skills we're trying to teach. Yes. One is mindfulness which yes. is put simply the ability not to be yanked around by your emotions.
1: Yes, like that. Yeah. The other
0: is compassion or yeah. if you're if you're afraid as I am of gooey words, you can just retranslate that into friendliness, just friendliness. kind of a,
1: exactly. a a
0: cooler, calmer, nicer attitude toward external yeah. and internal Although
1: can I replace the word "cooler" with "warmer"?
0: Sure. Yes, (laughs) better. I mean, cooler. I know. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, But fair enough. Uh, So it sounds like you pivoted from the initial Zen tradition into what's known as the Insight tradition, which is just another form of Buddhist meditation. It's actually the school I've trained in, and you stumbled upon teachers like Jack Kornfield and Sharon Salzberg, both of whom have written a lot about yes mindfulness. Yes. Again, just being able to be non-judgmentally aware of stuff right. and compassion, which is adding in the not just non-judgmentally aware, but having a certain element of warmth in the awareness. Right.
1: Group. And so so the mindfulness is aimed at holding experience in a non-judgmental manner. So the compassion is aimed at holding the experiencer in a friendly manner. Mm-hmm. And so they have slightly different targets. And so both need to be practiced. That can actually almost appear to conflict sometimes because... You accept your experience as it is, including the fact that it's painful, at the same time that you're wishing yourself well and you want to help. And so it almost forms a bit of a paradox. Actually, one of the sayings we like to say is, we give ourselves compassion not to feel better, but because we feel bad. So you have to allow the experience to be as it is at the same time as toward the experiencer, because you're friendly, because you care, you do what you can to help.
0: So one paradox is... Since – sorry, let me see if I can restate that. And yeah. I'm also thinking that there may be yet another paradox. <laughs> Probably. Uh, <laughs> one paradox is you – in mindfulness meditation, we are not trying to control anything. We're just yeah. trying to see things as they are. Right. See clearly. Uh, insight is, yes. you know, the clear yes. seeing of yes. whatever's happening right. so that it doesn't own us. Right. The, um, but in, in this case, uh, when you add in the compassion layer, you're trying to – uh, notice that there's suffering there. Yes. And you're not trying to alleviate it per se, you're just sending warmth toward the suffering as it is.
1: Right. You aren't trying to manipulate your experience because if you use compassion to try to make the pain go away, mm-hmm. it's actually just another form of resistance. Mm. So you have to fully accept the fact that this is painful, this hurts, you know, and that's the mindfulness validating and accepting the fact that this is really painful right now. And at the same time, we give ourselves warmth and kindness. You know, I'm so sorry, it's so painful. Is there anything I can do to help and support myself in this moment? Right. And so they're targeted kind of at two different targets. So they have to be both held together. And, you know, they say compassion and wisdom, they're two wings of a bird. We need both wings. We need to tend toward ourselves. At the same time, we accept our experience.
0: All right. Well, I was just going to ask you how we do this, because I think most of the listeners will understand basic mindfulness meditation. We often pick the breath as our object. We sit and try to feel the breath. Every Uh time we get distracted, which will Mm -hmm. happen a million times, we start again. Compassion meditation or self-compassion meditation Mm -hmm. involves a little bit more kind of discursive thinking, or not discursive thinking, targeted thinking, where you are sending well wishes toward yourself. And you did this little thing where you said, I'm so sorry. You're feeling this way. Is there anything I can do? Like, and that for me, as a typical Western raised in uh, patriarchal system guy, think I think I'm not going to say that to myself. Right, right, right. Do I have to do that?
1: You don't have to do it that way. You can, um, you can give yourself like a, a you know, you can use, do it physically. So what we're doing is, um, hmm, we're re- there's really two different safety systems. So we're activating the care safety system. Because as mammals, you know, when we come out of the womb, the way we feel safe is by connection with other people, right? Connection, love, warmth, that's what allows us to feel safe. And so what we're doing is we're kind of intentionally targeting the care system. And you can do it with language, but it's true that language doesn't work for everyone. Um, You can do it with physical touch, so like, you know, putting your hand on your body in a way that feels supportive. Um, You can just do it with... With friendliness, like, hey, it's okay. You can call yourself buddy if you want. <laughs> you know, whatever works, the language, is, it doesn't really matter what the language is. What matters is the attitude of caring and warmth, and that can be expressed in a lot of ways. But mindfulness, it's not intended to be a standalone practice where it's just about accepting experience completely as it is. The, the reason we practice is because we want to alleviate suffering right? And so ironically, when we practice, we have to accept what's happening because if we don't, it's going to make things worse. But at the same time, it's really helpful. So for instance, there's some research that shows if you teach people some self-compassion before they learn mindfulness meditation, they're more likely to stick with it. Because what happens is, you know, the mind starts saying, oh, I can't do this. I'm so bad at this. And it starts judging, you know, we start judging ourselves. And although it's, It is we want to accept that and just see them as thoughts. It really makes a difference if you give yourself some kindness. Oh, man, that's kind of hard. I'm. It's okay. You know, the the friendliness, the warmth, the human connection. And and I know people get confused because it's self-compassion, but compassion is inherently connected. The word compassion in the Latin means to suffer with. And so when you give yourself compassion, It's not really aimed at yourself. It's just opening up. You're actually becoming less self-ish or your focus is less on the self. And just remembering that all people are imperfect. All people suffer. It's not just me. And that's where some of the feelings of connectedness come. So connectedness and kindness and mindfulness, those three components, at least the way I think about it, make up the experience of compassion.
0: I want to get back to literally how we do this because—
1: Because yeah, that's where I, that's what I've been spending the last 10 years doing
0: <laughs> yeah and I can't imagine myself giving myself a hug so but but before I, before yeah. we go there, I just yeah. want to get back to the because mm-hmm. I said earlier yeah. that there was a second paradox yeah and you just touched on it yeah. which is in mindfulness meditation, especially in the Buddhist tradition, yeah. one of the goals they hold out, which is very confusing for people is that you will ultimately see through the illusion of the self. Absolutely, and, yeah. And yet, here you are talking about yes. self-compassion.
1: Yes, yeah, that's right. And so it's, it's confusing. So, for instance, I was talking to one um, a Buddhist teacher. who said, he didn't even bat an eye. And he said, oh, you just mean inner compassion. If you think of it as inwardly directed compassion as opposed to just outwardly directed mm-hmm. compassion. And, of course, compassion is unidirectional, inside and outside. Then it makes sense. The the word self is like a heuristic, but you don't need an actual sense of separate self to give yourself inner compassion. Does
0: anybody outside of academia use the word heuristic? <laughs> I mean, I love the word; it's great.
1: I don't probably not. Basically, it's an intellectual concept. <laughs> it's, it's yeah, it's it's a useful. I think of it as it's useful. It's a useful tool. We don't have to take it very seriously. I just want to
0: congratulate you for, I think, being the first person on nearly 200 episodes to use the word heuristic. (laughs) No, it's great. I'm not even teasing you. I think it's awesome.
1: (laughs) Anyway, but yeah, there there are a lot of paradoxes. But, you know, so going back to – and I'm really glad you're bringing this up because um, in a way, one of the big blocks, especially for men, to practicing self-compassion, and which is a shame because we know from the research it's one of the – most powerful sources of strength, coping, and resilience we have available to us. One of the blocks especially for men is it goes against gender roles. It seems too feminine. It seems weak. It seems flowery, right? Um,
0: or it, or like just uncomfortable.
1: Uncomfortable, yeah, because men especially are socialized against expressing this this type of warmth and tenderness.
0: Even um, outwardly.
1: Even outwardly, yeah. And a, even outwardly, but especially when you add the word self. I mean, isn't self a woman's magazine, for goodness sake, right?
0: I don't know that I thought that, but I mean, I have a four-year-old. <laughs> it's the first time, my first and I o- our first yeah. and only child. I'm yeah. really tender with him, although I also yes. like roughhouse with him and, you know, fight yes, yes. his fat thighs and all that stuff. But that's the first time in my life, other than maybe with cats or something, and dogs, uh-huh. uh, that I've been— Really tender and probably the cats and dogs, but nobody's looking. And so Uh the idea, the proposition that you have already articulated here—that I should say these super warm things that I would I've never probably other than to my son said out loud or to hug myself—it's just hard. It's uncomfortable. I buy it, but it's uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, it is, and you don't have. And again, you you find ways of doing it um, that are more comfortable. For instance, um, so. The UT, I work at University of Texas at Austin. And so the Longhorn men's basketball team asked me to come in and give the guys a training.
0: Oh, how'd that go?
1: Great. Because <laughs> I didn't use the word self-compassion once because it's triggering. There's no, there's no, re- the words nothing special about the word. I talked about inner resilience and inner strength training. Oh, okay. And so basically, so when you're out there, when you're playing, you know, what, what mental voice do you want in your head? Do you want a coach saying, you suck, you can't do it, you know, you're crap, you should be ashamed of yourself, I can't believe you messed that shot. Or do you want a coach that's saying, hey, it's okay, this is maybe what went wrong, we can work, we can do this, I'm here, I'm supportive. So kind of an encouraging, supportive, kind voice. It doesn't have to take a particular form. The the form the kindness takes depends on what you need. And maybe what you need is not a hug, maybe that's not going to be helpful for you. But maybe you need you know, just kind of a little encouragement or a little understanding or just a little sense of acceptance, right? And, and so people find their own way into self-compassion. But the goal is just to be a, a supportive, kind, encouraging, helpful, beneficial, friendly presence, right? And so if you if the word friendliness works for you, that, yes. that works for me. So, for instance, in, in our training program for teens— We call it making friends with yourself. And so you could absolutely use that metaphor and you can think, what would you say to a friend? So the types of things, let's say you had a friend, maybe one of your buddies come to you and say, you know, Dan, I'm so upset this is happening or I got a cancer diagnosis or something like that. What types of things would you say to support your friend? Because that's the language that probably works for you. Then you can try to use that type of language with yourself. The language itself is not important. What's important is this uh, feeling of support, encouragement, and kindness.
0: What if I don't like myself?
1: Right. So, and, and you know, in a way, um, this is what self-compassion is exactly designed to address. I mean, it's, it's helpful for everyone, but many people internalize these ideas that I'm not good enough, you know, I'm flawed, or maybe, maybe you were rejected by your parents. So... What it's, first of all, what the first thing self compassion does is tune into the pain of that. You know, wow, that's that's kind of that's hard, right? If you don't like yourself, and it's not about saying it's not self esteem. Self esteem is I judge myself positively, or I judge myself negatively,
0: or compared to other people, too. And, and
1: also yeah. compared to other people. And self esteem is really contingent; it's dependent on success. If you don't succeed, your self esteem deserts you. It's a, it's a fair weather friend. Mm-hmm. So, self compassion, this kind of more unconditionally friendly attitude, um, just says, uh, you know, hey, everyone's imperfect. That's part of the human experience. One thing we like to say is the goal of practice is simply to become a compassionate mess. (laughs) You're still a mess. You know, you do what you can, but you're a human. So, by definition, you're going to be a mess. But can you hold that mess with kindness, with friendliness? Because if you don't, if you take it, if you take it's kind of again, another paradox. If you take that your imperfection or messiness personally, if you identify with it as who you are, then you aren't seeing the whole picture. because as you know, when you really start getting into practice, the reality of who we are is so much bigger than this particular moment in time. And you know we we identify we reify this experience into a sense of solid self. When reality, this is just what's unfolding, right? And so you might say we, we hold this unfolding mess with great compassion and kindness and friendliness. And the warmth is important. And again, just going back to the physiology, we are mammals, right? And we, we've got especially human mammals. We, we, humans are born um, the most immature. It takes 25 to 27 years for the prefrontal cortex to fully mature.
0: And I like My to, case is taking nearly. Five
1: years. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I like to joke. It may take another five years for the kids to actually leave home, you know. And the reason that's because the human brain is so plastic and it's able to you know change and evolve. And that that's why we're we, we're such slow developers. But physiologically, we needed a system in place that would prompt the, the infant or the you know the, the the child to be safe by being taken care of by parents or people who elders who take care of them, and that would also prompt. The, the parents to take care of the child. So we have a very evolved care system as part of our physiology. And so what we know, again, from the science is when you're when you're kind to yourself, when you're friendly towards yourself, touch is one way to do it, but other ways to do it as well, you actually lower the, the cortisol levels, you reduce the sympathetic nervous reactivity, and you actually activate things like heart rate variability, um probably oxytocin the dots haven't been totally connected so but most likely you're you're increasing oxytocin you're actually activating this physiological system that's designed to make us feel safe the problem with not liking yourself is it's very threatening and you feel isolated and so remembering that hey everyone's imperfect you know it's okay to make mistakes can i learn from it what we find is that friendly supportive attitude it has all sorts of benefits it increases motivation It allows you to cope. So just just for an example, there was one study done of um, soldiers who had come back from Iraq and Afghanistan and had actually seen action overseas. And they found that how soldiers treated themselves, how compassionate they were to themselves around the the real trauma they had experienced was a very powerful predictor of whether or not they developed PTSD nine months later, post-traumatic stress disorder. And in fact, it was more powerful than how much action they had seen. Mm. So more important than what you experience in life is how you relate to yourself in the midst of that experience when it's, when it's really traumatic or difficult. And so, you know, when people say self-compassion is a weakness, not for these soldiers. you know. And if you think, again, to use a metaphor, if you think of life as a battle in some ways, it's challenging. It's mm-hmm. really hard to be a human being. You know, It always has been. But you might say even especially now, when you go into those, these challenges or when you go into battle, who do you want inside your head? Do you want an ally who's saying, I'm on your side, I'm here to support you? Do you want it to be a friend? That kind of, that warmth, that care, that I'm going to do what I can to try to meet your needs as best I can. Do you want that voice inside your head? Or do you want a voice that shames you and say, it says you aren't good enough and you aren't good as, as good as this other person? And, you know, kind of a very defeatist voice. And 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 strong self-criticism People think it makes them stronger. It actually doesn't. You're actually pulling out the rug from underneath yourself. Now, again, that doesn't mean it's like Stuart Smiley. I'm great. I'm wonderful. Yeah, no, what you're saying is I acknowledge I'm a flawed human being. Everyone is a flawed human being. I'm going to try to be as friendly and supportive as I can. I'm going to try to learn from my mistakes. As opposed to taking my mistakes personally, what can I learn from this? And that kind of attitude of learning and growth actually is a very powerful way to, um, to actually succeed and be more motivated. So it makes you more strong, not weaker. It makes you um, more motivated, not less. It actually allows you to feel more connected, not more isolated. Right. A lot of people have misconceptions about self-compassion that it's you know, leads to self-pity or self-indulgence. They're all completely the opposite. It's, it's, the entire practice in a weird way is paradoxical.
0: I just was taking some notes here because uh, I realized there are about six things I need to follow up <laughs> okay. on. That's a sign of a good guest, by the way, okay. so not, I don't say that to criticize. I know I've been promising the listener that we'll dive into the nitty-gritty of how to actually do this thing. But, yes. but you've uh-huh. raised a couple of things that I do mm-hmm. th- think we need to chase down. You talked about Stuart Smalley. Yes, Uh that is a character from Saturday (laughs) Night Live, played by the now, I guess, former senator, resigned under a cloud, Al Franken from Minnesota. Back in his acting comedian days, he was on SNL, and he played a character named Stuart Smalley, would look in the in the mirror and say something like,
1: "I'm good enough. I'm smart enough." And doggone it, people like me.
0: Yes. So that is not what you're talking about. (laughs) That's
1: right. Yeah. It's not positive thinking. It's actually, it's not about judgments or evaluations at all. It's just, I'm, you know, I'm a human being. I'm flawed. I'm imperfect. I'm trying to learn and grow. I'm doing the best I can. And it's really about a supportive, friendly attitude toward oneself. And that support is a tremendous source of strength, coping, and resilience. And it's one that, you know, it's, it's really kind of, um, it's, it makes me a bit sad that in our society, we don't utilize this strength. You know, we, we don't realize that um, we can actually give ourselves a lot of the support we need, not completely, we aren't automatons, but we're so reliant on other people to meet our needs, to make us feel loved, to make us feel supported, to make us feel okay. You know, they've got their own stuff going on. They can't always be there for ourselves. You know, some people like to describe self-compassion as a way of reparenting yourself. Mm-hmm. So the ideal parents, you know, met your needs consistently. They were warm, they were accepting. Um, they also helped guide you and, and pointed out where you made mistakes to help you learn and grow and, you know, become this the person, hopefully, that, that would be the, the ideal person we all want to be. But of course, no one has perfect parents. People who, who, who have more supportive, warm, kind, caring parents, they do tend to have more natural self compassion. They internalize that. And people whose parents weren't warm and supportive, you know, or they, they have insecure attachment. It's a little, it's a little harder. You, naturally, you, you're less self compassionate. The beautiful thing about this is you can learn it as a skill. Mm. This is not just a naturally occurring personality trait. I mean, it is, but it's also a practice. You can actually do this. You can actually cultivate the ability to be kinder and more supportive to yourself, especially when you're struggling. I mean, that's that's the really exciting thing about self-compassion is there's um, a lot of research that shows this is actually a trainable skill.
0: It's interesting you talked about the role of your parents. I had and have very warm and supportive parents, Uh and yet I have very nasty inner narrator, Right. maybe because I descended from a long line of depressives and anxious mm-hmm. people and alcoholics, et cetera, et yeah, cetera. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the stories I told myself for a long time before getting into meditation was, uh, my father has an expression, which is, the price of security is insecurity. In other words, we venerate worrying, uh, especially on the Jewish side of my family, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um and actually, he, that's not his personal motto. I learned later he made that up to make me feel better about the fact that I was worrying all the time.
1: Okay. Uh-huh. Um, uh.
0: And I told myself that any success I was succe- uh, experiencing here in the hallways of ABC News, mm-hmm. where I've been for 19 years now and, mm-hmm. and w- has traditionally been a very tough place, less so now, but was very, mm-hmm. very tough when I first got here, mm-hmm. was because I was worrying all the time and and had, had very high standards, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I think a lot of people tell this story. So you addressed yeah. this a little bit, but I want you to—I just want to go back to it. This internal cattle prod that many of us have. Yes. How do you? What do you say to folks? And I'm sure you hear the argument all yeah. the time. Like yeah. this is the thing that's keeping me afloat.
1: Right, and 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 you know, there's a way in which it is true, right? So, for instance, if you have a um, very—I I like to use this example. Let's say um, a parent is trying to motivate their child. And so in some ways, we are, we are our own parent and our own child, right? Self-to-self relating. So there's two ways to motivate a child to do better. So um, let's say the child comes home with a failing math grade and the parent tries to, wants, wants the child to go to college. So you can motivate that child with fear. You can be really harsh. I'm ashamed of you. You're a good-for-nothing loser. You know, I, I'm going to ground you for 10 months. Now that will kind of work. The child will probably work harder and study more next time because they're they're afraid of getting that negative reaction. So it kind of works, but there are a lot of unintended consequences. For instance, a performance anxiety. They may be so anxious the next time mm-hmm. they take the test it's actually going to allow that's going to undermine mm-hmm. their ability to to do peak performance. Um, fear of failure. You know, it just they, you might develop so much fear that you're going to fail and get you know your your parents criticism and you know grounding or whatever punishment that you get fear of failure and then eventually you might give up so there's another way to motivate that child and that's with encouragement and support first of all hey i'm so sorry you failed Ouch, bummer you know kind of it's okay i love you anyway it doesn't affect my love for you the bottom line is it's okay you're human you fail but because i care about you and i know you want to go to college what can i do to help you how can I support you? Can we look and see your study patterns? Maybe this didn't work out so well. Should we hire in a tutor? You know, I believe in you. How can I support you to reach your goals? So the, the goals of self-compassionate people are just as high as everyone else's because, of course, you care about yourself. You want to you wanna reach your goals. But what happens when you don't meet them? That's the big difference. So, yes, fear, punishment, and kind of in a way this inner critic is kind of harsh self-punishment, kind of works, but then it might lead to anxiety, neuroticism, depression, you know, look at the epidemic of suicide. Mm -hmm. It has a lot of negative consequences. You can reach the same heights from this kind, encouraging, supportive approach. And also, you know, what what we show, what the research shows is when you feel safe because of this kind of bottom line, even if I fail, it's going to be okay, that um, what we know is You probably know this, negative emotions narrow our focus and positive emotions broaden our focus. So when you feel safe and you've got the positive emotion of of kindness and we know that compassion actually is a rewarding emotion, it actually allows you to see more possibilities. Maybe you didn't, you know, when you were so threat-focused, you didn't see this opportunity. But once you feel safe, oh, I see, maybe there's a completely different way to approach it I didn't even think about. So it allows for more what they call in, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy. It allows for more psychological flexibility.
0: Which of course is gonna make you safer because which you're it's gonna make ideas. you safer
1: and it's gonna help you you know so so actually you know, we used to believe that the best way to motivate our children was through harsh corporal punishment. Spare mm. the rod, spoil the child. And we know pretty, we know well now through a lot of research that actually that's not the best way to motivate our children. It works, but it causes so much damage as other ways to, to motivate our children. It doesn't mean you're complacent. It doesn't mean yeah, do whatever you want. That's not healthy. But how do we learn? How do we grow? How do we you know recover from our mistakes and do better next time? All in the context of the bottom line is I love you. You know, we actually can learn to do that with ourselves. It, it does feel weird at first. I'm i I'm not going to lie. If you spent your whole life relating to yourself in a particular way, um, you know, kind of with this harshness, it feels a little strange to be more friendly towards yourself. But you, you can practice it, and it does get easier with time. And I really encourage people to find their own authentic voice. Again, for you, Dan, I'm not going to suggest you hug yourself. <laughs> it's not going to work. But there may be, you know, some other ways. What works for you? What helps you feel more accepted, you know, more encouraged, more cared for? And using those pathways in. I was going to
0: tell a story that I, I don't know if I've told this on the podcast before. So if you've heard this before, I apologize. But I, about 10, 11 months ago, no, maybe nine months ago, I can't remember. Anyway, not that long ago, did a retreat. As part of this book that I'm writing about uh-huh. kindness, I did a one-on. I convinced one of my favorite meditation teachers, who has a real focus on compassion and self-compassion. Her name is Spring Washam.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. She's yeah. She wrote a great
0: book. She's yeah. a phenomenal human being yeah. and um, has been on the sh- on the show a couple times. And um, she and I did a one-on-one compassion retreat. Okay. So this was not just self-compassion, but compassion writ large. And yeah. but obviously, self-compassion is a huge focus. Yeah. And so we did. I had never. I'd done self-compassion practices before, or and compassion practices before, but it was a little bit of like a side interest, not the f- main dish. And so right. for 10 days, we did nothing with that and mm-hmm. actually filmed a lot of it uh-huh. because for, we're going to use it in the 10% Happier app. Anyway, at the beginning, yeah. she was saying, you know, uh, when you're sending compassion to yourself, you know, you maybe you put your hand on your heart. And I was like, there is no, I love yeah. you, Spring, but yeah, there's yeah. no way yeah. I'm doing that. Mm-hmm. And then by... Day five or six, there was a moment, and I'm embarrassed to say it was on camera probably because I think it happened repeatedly, where I was – I noticed something coming up. Maybe some of my inner repeated hobgoblins are sort of a rushing sense, Mm -hmm. you know, an impatience, Mm -hmm. and a suffering that comes from like not wanting to be here right now and looking Uh forward to the next thing. And then um, also a lot of self-criticism like, oh, Mm -hmm. wow, you were just off your game for the last 10 minutes or Uh – uh-huh. You have know, some memory surfaces of me being horrible in some one way. Uh-huh. And I actually did say, All right, it's okay. And I put my hand, I felt my hand go to my heart. Uh-huh. And what I noticed is actually there once I was once all the inner chatter had come down. Yeah. Because I was on retreat and I didn't have a lot to think about. Yeah. And I was more aware of what was going on, when I felt bad, it actually manifested in the area around my heart. So uh-huh. it actually hurt. There. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, so anyway, yeah, you're right, I'm not the kind of guy traditionally who would hug himself and yet here I was on this retreat with my hand on my heart sending myself well wishes. Right. And I would never I would, you know, I'm reluctant to admit that publicly, but here we yeah. are. And I yeah. I do admit it publicly because I think actually it would be useful for it's other useful. men who yeah. would resist this type of thing.
1: Right. Yeah. The difference between loving kindness and compassion, you know, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. But loving kindness is more general, wishing yourself well, to be happy and peaceful. Compassion is specifically, by definition, aimed at suffering, aimed at pain. So one practice we teach, which is actually very useful, um, is if you're if you're feeling something difficult, maybe anger or fear or sadness or grief or confusion, to the extent that you can locate it in your body, and that's one of the gifts of mindfulness practice, is the ability to actually physically. Did you see see that great new study by Richie Davidson that found that the ability to f- actually know where your the, the emotion is manifesting in your body. So so this congruence between knowing what you're feeling and where it is in your body, that, that in and of itself leads to well being.
0: It's called interoception.
1: Yeah well interoception is the, the actually the ability to feel things in your body, but the ability to feel your difficult emotions as a bodily sensation mm-hmm. and track when I'm more anxious. My body feels this way yeah. when I'm, you know, so just track the changes in your body as kind of attuned with your body as a manifestation of your emotions. It's actually, it's a really useful skill. But anyway, I, so if I, you I had, just will
0: say that for me uh, as a meditator, that happened quickly. Yes. That I just, instead of being fully engulfed and overwhelmed by an emotion, for me, Sorry. mostly anger or self-pity, yeah. uh-huh. um, I was switching to noticing how it felt.
1: Right. Okay. And so what you can do if you can just put a hand wherever that emotion is experienced, it might be in your gut, it might be in your throat, it might be in your head, it may be in your heart, you know, it it almost doesn't matter. And then so what happens is when you put a warm hand here, again, part of this is just physiology, you know, just think about it. When babies are born, they have no language. Touch for human beings, there's, there's great research on touch in the care system, Touch is one of the primary access points for compassion, for feeling safe, for feeling cared for. Our whole parasympathetic nervous system is very closely linked to touch. And so, you know, it's sad because, yes, it is touchy-feely. But nonetheless, literally, literally. (laughs) but as human beings, that's that's the way we're designed physiologically. So there are other ways to access it, but it seems a shame to, to miss out on that really powerful tool just because it feels uncomfortable because as human beings, that's the way our bodies and our brains are designed. They're, they're, we're designed to react to touch. This is and why also, I think you're also such a successful. Tone of voice. You, also.
0: Oh, I was just going to say this is why I think you're. Hold that okay, thought. Okay. But I wouldn't give you a compliment. <laughs> no, this is why you. I think you're such a successful communicator on this because you do have a style that is a little touchy feely, but you back it up with so many basic biological and scientific facts that even somebody like me who has such a powerful allergy Uh to that kind of style, Yeah, I I have to listen.
1: Right. Well, thank you. Well, and I think in some ways that's the integration of the masculine and feminine, right? So, sadly, why do we not like touchy-feely? Because it's kind of seen to be feminine qualities and science and Mm -hmm. hard logic is supposed to be a masculine quality and, you know, to succeed, we're supposed to be masculine. And and I'm both, you know, and that's, you know, both simultaneously – that's kind of... We all are, right? We, we all are. But here's the thing is men are socialized. They, they aren't allowed to be in touch with the kind of more warm... You know, I'm, I said earlier, I'm kind of referring to this as the yin and yang of self-compassion. There's the receptive tender side, and there's also the action-oriented kind of more fierce side. And both are necessary for all human beings. Um, I really work hard to integrate both, to honor both. Um, but in work context, the young, the kind of masculine is honored and valued and the more feminine isn't. And that's a real disadvantage to women. But the way men suffer is because in the relational field, they're socialized not to be in touch with those more tender sides. And that hurts men too. Yes. You know, and so we're all being harmed by not being able to be our true authentic selves, which is both masculine and feminine, both active and passive, both receptive and, you know, goal-oriented, these these, these essential dialectic, we need both simultaneously all the time. And I think maybe that's what you're picking up on when saying I'm a, a touchy-feely scientist. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm integrating my left and right brain, and, and both are really important, I feel.
0: Seven A. Selassie, who's a teacher I really, was a friend and a uh-huh. teacher I really like, um, she also teaches a lot on the 10% Happier app. And so, she has mentioned something like, You think you're thinking your thoughts. This is a quote she's used, taken uh-huh. from somebody else, but you're, you think you're thinking your thoughts, but you're actually thinking the culture's thoughts. That's right. And that's so right. for me, I mean, yeah. I don't want to think of myself as sexist because obviously that's one of the yeah. worst things you can be in our yeah. woke society right now. Yeah. And yet, obviously, this allergy I have to the touchy feely is. Yeah sexist in in many ways well, and it, we, that we are socialized to be that way
1: because the feminine has less power that's one of the outcomes of patriarchy is this this side of human nature when it's devalued by patriarchy um it means that so f- not you dan as a person but in terms of the larger cultural context which is which is operating in you unconsciously you know you aren't choosing to be this way but when you think touchy-feely what it's triggering is less powerful if I'm touchy-feely, I am less powerful because I'm moving more toward the feminine where there's less power. And that's, that's damaging to men.
0: Yeah, well, I, I guess consciously, I'm not thinking that. Consciously, I know, I'm thinking you aren't, it's just annoying.
1: You aren't consciously doing yes, it. This, yeah, see, that's yeah. what we know about it. And biases are all implicit. They're yes, all unconscious, yeah. whether it's about race or gender. Yeah. These things are operating outside of our awareness. And one of the beautiful things about uh, mindfulness is that it does give us more clarity.
0: I mean, we've talked about it a lot on this show, and I know it's sort of a little bit off topic for what you've come here to discuss, but bringing into the sunlight, which is a painful process, embarrassing, humiliating, to see, oh, wow, wow, I just reached this snap judgment about somebody based on their pigmentation that's pretty Negative, yeah, and that that's in you. If you can yeah. see that, and as you said before, not take it personally, yes, then you're not owned by it, and then you, you're avoiding a whole many, many worse mistakes,
1: yes, exactly. But that's why you also, this again, this is the yin and the yang. The yang kind of gives us the clarity, and it's kind of the slightly more masculine energy but you also have to like be kind to yourself. Yes, you didn't yes. choose to yeah, be prejudiced. It's yeah. not like I signed up for, "Yeah, I want to be prejudiced," mm-hmm. you know. This this is part of the larger culture, and so you have to be able to hold the pain. And so so these two these this dialectic of self-compassion. So so the yin energy allows us to kind of be with ourselves in a compassionate way to kind of validate ourselves to accept ourselves as we are. It's very powerful. It's especially powerful for dealing with shame. How do you hold shame? Shame drives so much negative behavior, so much destructive behavior. People can't even begin to touch their shame, so they act out. They start shooting people. I mean, it's, it's really destructive. Um, and actually, you know, there's a little bit of gender and shame as well because it manifests differently. But a lot of men's behavior, what we know psychologically, is driven by the avoidance of shame, right? Mm. How do you hold shame, that, that intense pain, you have to hold it with kindness. You know, hey, this is part of being human. Everyone feels this. Everyone's imperfect. Everyone makes mistakes. You, you know, the mess of shame, you need to hold it with compassion. And so the, the healing power of self-compassion is, is more part of the, you know, it's not totally either or, but it's part, more part of the yin side, the kind of being with ourselves in a kind, accepting, warm way, loving way, if I can use that word as a scientist, but it is. It's a, an expression of love. But then there's also the action side. You know, think of a firefighter who jumps into a burning building to save people who are, you know, about to go up in flames or service, you know, servicemen and women who, who actually risks their own lives to protect people. That is an ultimate act of compassion. You know, but it's, it's the other side of it is taking action or motivate, you know, a, a coach who motivates a, the kid to achieve their goals or teachers or people who work three jobs to put food on their table for their kids. All these stem from care. But so sometimes care requires being with acceptance. Sometimes care requires taking action to try to alleviate suffering. And that's slightly more, more the young side of self-compassion that people, first of all, they're confused. They don't realize it's there, and that's why they think it's weak. That's why they think it's selfish. They don't realize that it. it also has these um, action qualities. Uh, and then and then that's where gender comes in. All right, So men aren't allowed to be yin, and women aren't allowed to be yang. We all need both, so we're kind of both messed up because of it. you know. And so self-compassion is a way to hold all of it. You can hold the pain of things like Patriarchy. I mean, I'm sure you don't want to be patriarchal, but you're you're a white man, and so some of the you know, can you didn't choose to be this way, but this is part of the larger culture that's actually encoded in your brain patterns, yep. right? So how do you how do you deal with that? Well, first of all, you have to have a lot of kindness. You have to have a lot of forgiveness. You have a lot of have to have a lot of acceptance, and you have to be able to touch the pain of it. You know, and I'm sure that my my colleague Chris Germer. We were talking about this issue and he just as a white male, he broke down and cried because he touched the pain of that. He's such a kind guy. And when he really opened to the pain of his own privilege, you know, it was just yeah, it it's really touching. Yeah. But he but because he he, he developed all these self compassion practices with me, he was able to hold it. So he didn't have to defend himself. He didn't have to pretend, oh, it's not there. Where do you, it's, it's not, I don't know. I'm not privileged. You know, he, he could open to it. And then you have to open to the pain, the yin, hold it with kindness before you can take action, which is the yang, and do something about it. And both are, both are really needed. Um, and the, the flip side is for women. And I'm a woman. So my, my next book is actually um, going to be called Fierce Compa- Self-Compassion for Women. It's kind of, I think women really need to cultivate this yang energy. We need to protect ourselves. We need to say no more. We aren't, we're going to stop subordinating our needs. No, you can't sexually harass me. No, you can't abuse me. No, you can't pay me less. No, you know, it has to be more equal. Uh, I'm not just going to like give up everything that's valuable to me to meet other people's needs. That, that, that socialization, you know, you, you may call me names, but I'm not going to buy it, you know. Women really need to rise up and claim their power, which has been stripped for them in large part because they aren't allowed to have this more yang energy, you know. And, and so everyone really needs both. And I think the beautiful thing about compassion is it is both. There's, there's mama and there's mama bear. Right, right. <laughs>
0: On this yang or yang or whatever, yang, uh, go with yang, um, (laughs) uh, aversion to sort of Uh fierce Uh self compassion. I think of my wife, I'll have to ask her Uh permission because it's personal. I watch with her dealing, I don't think we've referred to it as struggling with the yang side of self compassion, Uh but I do watch her struggle with how to draw boundaries with me, with our son. Uh, with her yeah. bosses yeah, and sh- she's really uncomfortable with it and yeah. then sometimes maybe she feels she takes it too far and is yeah. overly harsh and like yes. titrating mm-hmm. that is really yes. tricky and right. I I have compassion for that.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I'm, I'm similar. So I'm a successful academic and usually in many, any male-dominated field to be successful, you've got to really draw on your young side you know, your um, kind of more masculine, competitive, um, strong side, we get called names for it. This is this is the double bind women are in. To succeed, we have to be young, but we aren't personally liked when we're young. <laughs> People like us when we're young, but we can't succeed. You know, and mm. so that's why I just do away with the double bind, I don't care, I'm gonna do it anyway. But see, this is the thing, if you use that energy, the drawing boundaries, or the protecting yourself, or saying, no, I need to meet my needs, if you do it from a place of care, I like to refer to it as it's caring force. You're being forceful, but it's not aggressive. It's not personal. You aren't you aren't like blaming people. You're just the force that mama bear energy comes from a very pure, loving place of care and kindness. And when you when you remember that, when you integrate both energies, then it's clean. Then you don't then you don't just explode. You know you can target it and say no, that's not okay but it doesn't mean that you aren't okay. But no, that behavior is not okay. And so when, when integration is allowed to occur, um, it, just, it just works a lot better. It's also a lot more effective, you know. Um, but we're going to have to confront gender roles in order for both men and women to be able to be our, our full authentic selves because there's, so, there's so much pain in the world, mm-hmm. you know.
0: Much more of my conversation with Kristen Neff right after this. I owe you something, which is at some point I cut us off and sent us, I cut you off and sent us down a tangent. Okay. You were about to say something about tone of voice.
1: Oh, yes. All right. Okay. So, um, so what we know from um, the research, and this is a lot, I don't you've probably interviewed Dr. Keltner from UC Berkeley. Yeah, or, I have. Uh, yeah, he's yeah. not
0: been on the show, Dacker yeah. Keltner. Dr. Keltner, I don't know how you pronounce his name, it
1: da- rhymes with cracker. Dacker. Dacker Keltner. Okay. So, Dacker, <laughs> yeah. I did a
0: piece on him for uh-huh. Nightline about 10 years ago. He yeah. runs. Uh, a greater a, yeah, the Greater yeah, Good Center. The Greater Good Center and also yeah. basically a lab that studies compassion, yes. not just self-compassion, but all, yeah, all forms of compassion. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah really cool guy. i have been <laughs> actually really eager to have him on the show. So You Dakar, should have if you're listening. He'd, he'd be great. Come to New York.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so he's done some great research on this showing that the, basically the triggers of the care system, the triggers of compassion – uh, there are different ones, like so. Touch we talked about. Touch is a powerful trigger, but tone of voice. So his research shows that around the world, universally, regardless of what culture you go to, there's the same sound of compassion. Which is, I'm going to ma- ask you to do it, Dan. What's the sound of compassion?
0: So if I'm talking to my son and he's hurt himself,
1: yeah, or yeah, or yeah. If anyone, if anyone was hurt, what would you naturally say?
0: Are you okay, dude?
1: No, what's 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 the sound without words? Make a sound, uh, a sound. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. Around, there's not a single culture where it's like woohoo, you're no. hurt. It no. is not. like, It's a particular.
0: Well, ah. among then, my f- teenage boys, we would laugh at each other if we were hurt. So, so y- the yeah. compassion part of our brain had not fully come <laughs> right. into.
1: But as an express, so, and, but so there's a particular sound, and I, there's some term for it that. Huh, that kind of yeah. up and down and and animals uh, do it too yes. it's actually again this is part of our physiology remember huh. when we come out of the womb we don't have language so so those first couple years of life are so important this is where our whole when our whole attachment system is formed preverbally so what are our communicators that we're safe and we're loved and you know cared for uh, things like touch and tone of voice also gaze is an, another one I and mean, there's a little less research on gaze A tone of voice. So for some people, you know, maybe they don't say particularly harsh things to themselves, but their tone is really cold. So warming up the tone, you know, internally
0: for yourself. Internally,
1: internally, you can actually, it's mindful, it's not just what you say, it's how you say it. It's also your body posture. Is your body posture posture tense? Like Uh are you being tense and tight with yourself and kind of cold? Or are you being more relaxed and more warm with yourself? And that's why I made the joke earlier that it's about warming things up is about, 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 as opposed to cooling, to be yes. more cool. There is something about warmth, you know. And, and again, this is just our physiology. So we, we need to, um, you know, it's, it's really, it's not about, it's not a mental practice. Compassion is not a mental practice. There is a mental component. But it's really an embodied practice. It's about feeling you know, it's about, um, you know, I, often when we teach people self-compassion, we say, see if you can just kind of drop out of your head and your mind and the storyline and just drop into your body, you know. And what we're doing in a way is, is we're, <laughs> if you want to be scientific about it, it's, it's the parasympathetic nervous system. We're calming down. We're, our cortisol is reducing, you know, less adrenaline. Our heart rate becomes more variable, more flexible. Oxytocin is being released. And this is actually an embodied experience. And so that's why I think it's really useful to come to self-compassion, not just through the mind. Yes, the words are important. There's one pathway in. But you can actually uh, approach it as an embodied practice.
0: So okay, you've now teed me up to finally get okay, to, 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 finally how, get do to how do we practice. Okay, it seemed. get right? to how do So it seemed I'm, I'm guessing, yeah. based on, I'm not guessing, based on my experience, there are kind of two ways. One is, The formal seated or practice, and the other is free range on the go. Informal, yeah,
1: yeah. And so, what we find actually in our research, so we've developed this training program called the Mindful Self Compassion Program, and we find it doesn't matter which one you do; Hmm. they're they're equivalent. They they're both effective. So you can sit in meditation. Um, We know that loving kindness meditation um, increases self compassion. We have other meditations like using the breath as a way to kind of calm and soothe yourself. Or we actually um, we actually teach a practice where we, we tailor the phrases to be a little more aimed at your pain. Because loving kindness, sometimes it can be hard to throw friendly wishes when you're just in a lot of pain. You can actually, with compassion, you need to turn toward the pain directly and just kind of validate that it hurts, that kind of kind, that, oh... <laughs> That type of attitude for the pain, so you can do that in sitting meditation. But there are a lot of informal practices. So we we do teach people to find a touch that feels supportive. Hand on heart works for about fifty percent of people. About fifty percent it doesn't. Some people like hands on the solar plexus. Some people like putting a hand on your face. Some people just holding their own hand. I mean, people have to find a way in the type of touch that works. But that's one way. Um, learning to speak to yourself in a more friendly and supportive manner. Um, for many people, the best way is to, is to think about what would I say to a close friend who, who I really cared about, who was going through the exact same situation I'm in? You know, what would I more naturally say, especially if I was at my most compassionate? What would I say to support them, to help them, to let them know that I cared about them in this in their time of struggle? So you can use that as a template for yourself. You can also imagine what an ideally compassionate person would say to you, or or spiritual figure. You know, when people say, "What would Jesus say?" In a way, what would Jesus say is a self-compassion practice. You know, can I model my inner dialogue based on what I would imagine someone like Jesus would say? You know, so it, this it can work with religion. It can also be separate from it. Um, uh, compassionate letter writing. Uh, you'll probably like this. There was one study that showed if you wrote a self-compassionate letter for seven days straight. It um, reduced depression for three months and increased happiness for six months. Right, that very simple act. And I think there's a lot of uh, reasons of how it operates. One thing, your perspective taking, instead of being lost in the pain, you're stepping outside of yourself and doing perspective taking and saying, wow, you're really having a hard time. Is there anything I can do to help? So by doing that, you're disidentifying with the pain, which in and of itself is powerful. That's kind of the mindfulness but then you're also adding the sense of connectedness hey it happens to everyone imperfection is the human experience it's not just you you know and we forget that when, when when we make a mistake or we get that call from the doctor we think something has gone wrong like this is the plan i signed up for as if everyone else is is being perfect and has a perfect life and it's just me who's struggling so reminding yourself of common humanity that this is normal and this is part of being human you are not alone and the, and then the kindness right so the warmth the kindness the care aspect all three elements are really important so another way you can you can practice self compassion is just reminding yourself of those three components we have something called the self compassion break first you use mindfulness you just remember wow this is i'm struggling you might think that's obvious, it's really not. A lot of people aren't even aware that they're struggling. They're so lost in the struggle or trying to fix the struggle, or you know, they don't have any perspective. They're totally identified with it. They can't help themselves when they're lost in the pain. So first is mindfulness. Oh, I see, this is the moment where I'm really having a tough time. And then you remind yourself of common humanity. Well, this is part of life, it's not just me. It's not abnormal to be struggling. You know, the sense of isolation that we get when we, when we fall into the illusion that everyone else is perfect and we aren't, it's debilitating. You know, they say in, in uh, evolutionary biology, a lone monkey is a dead monkey, yeah. right? You know, so that feeling isolated because we've made a mistake is really, really detrimental. So remember, hey, this is, this is part of how we learn. This is normal. It's natural. There's nothing wrong to make a mistake. And then bringing in the kindness. You know, what can I say to let myself know that even though I'm struggling, I care, I'm there for myself, I can support myself, I'm not going to abandon myself? I mean, think about that. Don't we do that? We abandon ourselves when we struggle. We just, you know, our minds don't even go there. We have this ability when we're in pain to actually give ourselves care, support, and kindness and we just abandon it. We don't even use it. We just we, we It's like this. We've got this incredible, powerful tool. All we need to do is remember to use it, and, and we don't. And so you can just think, well, what would my really good friend say to me right now? Or what would I say to a really good friend right now? Or what would Jesus say? Or whatever, whatever you know, image you have of compassion. Just remembering the kindness. When you put those three together. So, you know, these are the three components of self-compassion in my model, the mindfulness, the common humanity, and the kindness. But if you want to talk about how it feels in a moment of yin, self-compassion, it feels like loving, connected presence. You're holding your pain in loving, connected presence, right? Sometimes the pain is because you need to protect yourself. It's different. It feels like fierce, empowered clarity. This is not okay. I'm going to stand together with my brothers and sisters, and I'm going to say no.
0: Me too. Me
1: too. Exactly. And so the the, the face, the, the the manifestation of this caring um, force may vary, but it's all coming from the same place, you know. And mindfulness and and compassion are kind of they aren't exactly the same because again they have those slightly different targets, but they it's it's part of the same dance, you know. At some point, it's just. Open heart, mind, and when your heart is open and your mind is open, you are connected with everything.
0: So you just you talked about a lot of approaches we could take, but yeah. I'm, I'm still I'm just wondering st- for the listener <laughs> right. uh, here, many of whom are med- many if not all of whom okay. are meditators. Uh-huh. Can you uh, can you describe how we would do self compassion as part so we, of our meditation yes, practice? Right. Which I would only imagine right. Fuels the ability to oh, do it off the cushion. I mean, cushion.
1: we know meditation is one of the best ways you can actually train your brain and change your neural structure. So it's 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 very powerful. It's not the only way to do it. It's equally important to integrate it in your daily life. But so if you're meditating, um, so for instance, we we teach meditation in the Mindful Self Compassion Program. Uh, some is like what you do when your mind wanders. You can use the wandering mind as an opportunity for self-compassion. Mm. So not only do you notice that your mind has wandered, you might you might actually use that to say, "Ah, you know, just like just imagine like your your mind is like a little toddler who wandered off. Can you just hold the hand of that toddler?" Gently bring it back to where it's supposed to be. Of course it wanders. You know, it's just, that's what it does. But I can still be kind to the wandering mind. You can actually use um, any sort of frustration that occurs in practice. Let's say you fall asleep, you can't focus, you're, you know, whatever. You aren't in that lovely, peaceful state that people like. You can use that as an opportunity to practice compassion. Hmm. Give yourself some kindness and acceptance and remember that this is just part of the human experience. So that's one way you can do it. You can also, for instance, the breath, the breath can be used to kind of calm the mind and settle the mind as as a focus of attention. But there's also quality to the breath that you can focus in on. The breath itself can be very soothing, Hmm. very comforting. Um, Paul Gilbert actually talks about the, the soothing rhythm of the breath. You know, it's, you can actually notice it. It's a strange way in which there's this internal rocking motion that you can rest in. You can allow yourself to be cared for by the breath. So that's another just little slant on it you can uh, use to um, activate this. Um, another practice, we, we, uh, actually my favorite practice, is uh, again using the breath. We imagine that we're breathing with each in-breath, you're breathing in compassion for yourself and with each outbreath you breathe out compassion for others
0: yeah, it's a derivation of the it's like, tibetan, yeah, it's tonglen tibetan tonglen yeah tibetan
1: tonglen but that practice is a little more it's a beautiful practice but you breathe in suffering of the world and you transform it and you breathe out compassion so if you're if your aim is to actually cultivate self-compassion mm. we find it's actually a little more useful a little less challenging to just breathe in for yourself this is hard for me Breathe out for others. This is a really good practice for caregivers. We teach like doctors and nurses or teachers. You know, it's hard. These jobs are hard. It's hard to care for others. I feel burnt out. I feel overwhelmed. Breathe in compassion for yourself. It's hard to feel the sympathetic distress. It's hard to do what I do. I feel overwhelmed. I feel burnt out. Breathe in compassion for yourself. Validate your own pain and then when you breathe out, breathe out compassion for the person you're caring for. They're struggling too. And the nice thing about breathing compassion in and out is it's very connecting. It's, it's, a, it's a practice that's very connecting. You can breath in, breath out. Um, you can focus a little more on yourself if your pain is more salient or focus more on the other if their pain is more salient. But this idea that it's this flow inward and outward that's, that's why it's a it's a really nice practice. Um, all these meditations I have on my website, people can access. What's um, the website? Uh, selfcompassion.org. We'll, if, you, if you Google if you Google self compassion, you'll find me. Nice. We'll <laughs> so, also put it in the show yeah, notes for okay. listeners. But yeah. what
0: about the repetition of phrases like "May I be happy"? Yeah.
1: yeah. So um, so loving kindness. We do also teach loving kindness. So again, um, my colleague Chris Grimmer. I, I think he he's brilliant. He developed a way of helping people find personally meaningful phrases that really help to the things that they need to hear. The standard phrases are fine and they work for a lot of people, but you know, may I be safe, may I be peaceful, may I be healthy, may I live with these. If 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 you're if you're devastated because you've just lost your son or something like that, it feels kind of a little incongruent to say, may I be safe, maybe happy, may I be peaceful, may I live with these. Yeah. And it's actually so so actually he guides people through an exercise where you actually think, what do I need to hear right now? You know, If I had someone who could whisper in my ear in this moment exactly what I need to hear, what would that be? And then you use that as your phrase. So it's a little more personalized and also it can be a little more targeted toward if what you need to hear is addressing the real pain you're in, then you can you know, use, may I accept myself as I am, you know, may I support myself, you know. I'm okay. Whatever it is you need to hear, you actually personalize your phrases to, to touch that directly. So that's one way we we kind of work with the loving kindness practice.
0: Well, how has this practice played? I mean, you, you got interested in self-compassion. There was something that that Zen teacher in Berkeley, Low these many year, years yeah. said about self-compassion that turned you on and has become your life, your livelihood, yeah. your, your career. Yeah. How has it played out in your life? You know, I, you mentioned a, a son. You have a son who has special yes, needs. I yes. mean, how has this all worked for you?
1: Yeah, well, yeah. So I, I talk a lot about my son because he's really my my best teacher. Um, so yeah, so he. my son is autistic and I had about seven years of pretty dedicated self-compassion practice under my belt by the time he got diagnosed. Uh, and you know, I can't even imagine how I would have gotten through without it. I, I would have, but it, it helped me tremendously so it helped me both not only the mindfulness practice of accepting my feelings you know allowing the grief to be there um, allowing the feelings of disappointment to be there without judging them without making them go away but what really helped was in addition to that giving myself that you know it's really hard this is really hard you know I would actually give myself that 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 love that kindness that care especially like when he was having a ear-splitting tantrum, you know, even though he's in pain, I made sure he was safe, but that's when I would do my breathing in compassion practice. I would just, this is so hard, breathe in for me, this is so hard, I feel overwhelmed, I don't know what to do, I feel like I want to jump out a window, you know, and it's, you know, and the kind of gave myself that love and support and that care, and then I was able to also breathe out for him, and you know, so it allowed me to stay connected in those moments, rather than just focusing on him or you know, just being overwhelmed. So um, it's really it's really helped me in that practice. Just really everything I've gone through. I mean, at this point, um, self compassion is is, is be- it is it has become a habit. You know, occasionally, yeah, sure, thoughts will come up, um, feelings of failure and stuff come up, and there's pain. But now my my habit is to just recognize it as pain, and to do whatever I need to do to be there for myself in the moment. Again, whether that's I need some acceptance, some yin, some soothing, some comforting, some validating, or whether that's action. You know, it's, it's helped me. Um, you might say, well, you know, so I'm, I'm an academic, and there's, there's, there's been some struggles in, the, in my academic career as well. It's really helped me the fact that I can integrate the care with the taking action it's helped me be more stable and more balanced, even in times of challenge. Um, again, not, I'm still a mess. <laughs> don't get me wrong, Dan. I'm still a mess. But I am a compassionate mess. It's, it's an achievable goal. I mean, that's the beauty of it. I Sometimes I joke, I'm glad I'm a compassion teacher and not a mindfulness teacher because <laughs> I don't always have equanimity. I'm not always aware. I get lost. But I can pretty quickly now, I'm in the habit of, Whatever pain, whatever mess is happening, I just hold that with compassion.
0: That's the name of your book, by the way, Compassionate Mess. That's the name.
1: I, well, I was thinking that. I, <laughs> I think it's going to be fierce self-compassion for women, but I also like the idea of compassionate mess. It's a really, it's a nice idea because you know it kind of explains what it is. And that actually is the goal. Rob Nairn actually said Message that. Message
0: to your editor. Okay, that's da, the book dan, I'd be more likely to pick things. up at an airport. But that's
1: right. But remember, my book's for women.
0: I know. <laughs> I think women, I know a lot of women. I okay. feel like I've sold well, a lot of books to women.
1: Okay. So we can, we can, we can maybe have two titles. But I, I agree. I, I love that phrase because it, it just really it captures it. So self, high self esteem is not an achievable goal, you know?
0: Maybe not even a desirable goal. Yeah,
1: exactly. But compassionate mess is. And when you hold things in compassion, anything becomes workable. That's the thing, it becomes workable. And you can actually learn, it sounds strange, but you actually learn to rest your awareness in the loving, connected presence and the compassion, holding the pain, as opposed to your awareness being identified with the
0: pain. Well, So let's walk walk me through that. So how this works in a moment in your mind for you. So So. for me, I have lots of, I don't want to guess at what your little, uh, you know, daily... um, thorns in your, in your side maybe <laughs> uh-huh. but for me it's like yeah. uh I have the whole self-critical thing around I have more around belly fat than I want to have I'm skinny okay. guy but I wish I had the abs I had in my mid thirties, and right. I'm now well coming up on forty eight, and okay. they're not there anymore in any discernible way. And so every time I pass a reflective surface, when I'm I was just at the beach for a week with my right. family, there was a lot of like, oh my god, looking at myself. Right. So what in that moment? How would right. things work?
1: So okay, so and this is why the three components of mindfulness, common humanity, and kindness are helpful because they're actually it's almost like a little mini instruction guide of what to do. So first, it has to always start with mindfulness. Mindfulness is the foundation. You got to notice that hurts instead of being lost in the thought that I wish I had to have a six pack. It's like the pain of that. This, this, you know, that that that's hurts. Whether or not it should hurt, whether or not you know, whatever. The, in fact, it doesn't matter because it does hurt. Mm-hmm. So you look in the mirror. Oh wow, that's painful. I mean, look, at, I'm I'm 52. You know, I'm past my prime. That's not fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it, it's But it's the reality, right? So. You look in the mirror and you say, oh, my God, I'm getting jowls or whatever it is. So identifying the pain of it, right? And then then the common humanity, right? Just remembering, well, this is, it's part of being human. It's part of aging. Everyone, you know, nothing lasts forever. This is actually part of the human experience. There is no human being alive that... (laughs) That didn't get older, you know, and that these things, their body didn't start changing. That's not what it means to be human. It's not just me. See, you, you, There's a tendency in the moment to think that every other man in the world, they're all GQ supermodels, aren't they? they no, all but have a I six have pack. some friends
0: who are older than me who are ripped, so that's okay. on my mind.
1: Yeah, okay, but, but, but they too, they too eventually... You know, they'll get old and they'll die. Sorry to, sorry to break the news, Dan. No, I,
0: I'm well aware of that news. Yeah. I'm just, what's happening cognitively for me is I know I'm going to die. Uh, I know everybody, I know is going to die, but I feel too young Right. To be at sure. that
1: point. Right, right. Okay. So, but, no, so nonetheless, so maybe some people, that's maybe your friends who managed to keep the six pack at age 50, whatever. Maybe that's not their particular thing they struggle with, but surely it's something. Mm-hmm. The human that's, experience that's awesome. is about, we struggle with our imperfection. The human experience is not about perfection. That's an Instagram illusion. <laughs> <laughs> you know, really, is the, isn't it true? Yeah, maybe it's not, maybe it's not autism. But it's something else. Maybe it's not that they don't have a six pack, but it's something else. Everyone struggles in their own way.
0: I've thought about starting it's, an Instagram account of only of my son's tantrums. Right?
1: <laughs> yeah. So, but so what you're really opening to it's not you're opening to a particular thing. You're opening to the just the fact of human imperfection. Mm-hmm. It's normal. You know this. This is, you aren't abnormal. It's nothing bad or wrong about not having a six pack. You know, again, if you want to, that's fine. That's your goal. There's nothing wrong with it. But just remembering that, you know, that, that your humanness, remembering your humanness, letting go of the idea of perfection, which is, which is false and an illusion, right? It causes a lot of suffering, but it's false and it's an illusion. So just opening to the reality that human being, human isn't about being I mean, we like, you know that, you know, So reminding yourself of it. And then... I
0: know it in theory. I know it for other people.
1: You know it, yeah. So, so you, you, but you forget it, right? It's, it's not that you, you, you know it, and but you don't in the moment. You've forgotten it. It because, feels
0: like a recipe for complacency. It feels like, and I know you're going to rebut this, but let me yeah, just yeah, play if, out yeah, the string. Yes. I. It feels to me, especially as it pertains the belly. Okay. I can't believe we're dwelling this long on my ears.
1: No, it's it's good. It's good. It's nice.
0: Uh, uh, That, you know, like if I hit the gym harder or if I hadn't eaten half of my son's plate of French fries, this wouldn't be this way.
1: Right. Okay. So what what you're doing in that moment is you're kind of falling into the illusion of complete self-control. It's actually – we aren't able to control things and have them be perfect. Now, if it really is important to you and also you feel healthier and stronger, absolutely. Go to the gym, do more sit-ups. Right? If if it's important to you and it's an important goal, and if it's gonna make you happy and it's gonna help you relieve the suffering, you know, then then you that then you bring in the kindness. The kindness could go a couple ways depending on what you need. The kindness may be, you know, I, I just I'd really feel so much better in my body. If I did more set, sit-ups, what can I do? Maybe I can make it easier for myself. Like like me, I hire my I pay my yoga teacher to come to me so I don't have to actually go to class. You know, if it's important to you and you think it'll help alleviate your suffering or make, help you be well, you find creative ways, maybe thinking about it differently, you know, what's not working in my routine now, how I can be different, that may be a way you go. It may be at some point that the way you go is, well, I'm just going to accept it. Again, it's w- acceptance or change Um, you know, it's a matter of wisdom, right? What's the right action to take? And I can't tell you what the the wise thing to do, but the thing is that that getting down on yourself and shaming yourself and like feeling bad about yourself for not having the six pack you want. Here's what happens, right? And, And maybe let me know if this is true. You think that in the moment and you feel bad about yourself. And then because you feel bad about yourself, Boy, that glass of wine looks pretty nice. Or you know, you want to comfort yourself to kind of counteract the feeling bad about yourself, and it actually ends up working against you. Yes. You know, shame. Shame is not the best motivating force, wouldn't you agree? <laughs> when you're feeling it full of shame, I will agree. When you're full of shame, is it really get up and go attitude?
0: <laughs> no, but there's some like a dry-eyed, sort of clear-eyed analysis of. Deficiencies does help
1: absolutely. That's the that's the mindfulness. That's the clear scene. Constructive criticism is incredibly helpful. Kindness leads to constructive criticism. Judgment and shame leads to harsh destructive criticism. We know for a fact that constructive criticism is more helpful than just saying you're you're a fat loser. I mean, who who does that help? You know. So again, the motivational power of it is. Because it hurts so much to call yourself a fat loser, you might, you you have some motivation to try to avoid that self whip, you know, but at the end of the day, it's probably going to undermine your efforts because you're going to be so, feel so bad about yourself, you're going to have that extra glass of wine or that piece of chocolate cake, right? But thinking, wow, you know, actually, this will make me happy. I can see clearly, I could open to the pain of it. How can I constructively do something different to help myself achieve my goal?
0: So the so the, the and that mo- and the, that's
1: the kindness. That's the kindness. Right. Kindness. So that's kindness the third is part. not. Yeah. Kindness. Sometimes. Remember. Kindness can be yin or yang. <laughs> kindness sometimes is. You know. It's time. I just have to accept it. But the, the kindness also might be the yang. Okay. What can we change to make things better? How can I help you? How can I help you reach your? How, you know. You'd say to yourself, "How can I help myself reach my goals in an effective, realistic manner?" And 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 the warmth. And feelings of safety are actually going to be more supportive of you being able to reach your goals than just shame and, and lots of dumping, lots of negative feelings on yourself. it actually pulling the rug out beneath yourself doesn't ultimately help very much. So we got a, li- we got a little off track, but so it, um, it's important that you've got these three elements, we need to be mindful. Mindfulness is the core we need to be aware we need to remember our connectedness. We aren't alone. The feelings, feelings of isolation, is, again, is one of the most psychologically debilitating states we can be in when we feel all alone. So you need to remember our connectedness in the struggle of human life. And it's our connectedness in the mess. I'm not the only compassionate mess. We're, we're all messes. You're a mess. I'm a mess. Everyone's a mess. You know, that's just part of being human. And then the kindness. And how, how might that kindness manifest? Sometimes the kindness is tough love. Sometimes the kindness is accepting love. Sometimes the kindness is encouragement. Sometimes the kindness is, you know, I just really need, I'm overworked. I need to cut back on my hours so I have more time to have work-life balance. You know, again, wisdom knows what the right thing to do is. But what's important is the friendliness, that intention, the kindness. The kindness is always aimed at helping, alleviating suffering, you know. And so you can actually just go through those steps. And, um, it's, it's a very easy thing to do. You can do in the moment. I, I I teach, we teach something called the self-compassion break where you find language that works for you because people are really different. And once you get like phrases that work for you, it's almost like a mantra and you can just repeat those phrases. Um, sometimes some touch can just automatically set it off. Mm. Right. You can use the breath. There's lots of different ways and, um, so I think in our Mindful Self-Compassion program, I think we have 37 different practices. You know, some work for some people, some don't. Um, but it, I think it's really worth spending the time to find out what works for you. I mean, I'm talking to you as a human being right now. If you struggle with this, you know, what works for you? What's What doorway actually opens that door to this loving, connected presence, to this... To this feeling of oneness, to this feeling of well-being, this feeling of um, care. Cause, you know, you, you want that. We all want that. We're human beings. And so what doorways open that for you? And it's actually worth spending some time asking that question. There's no right or wrong answer. Um, but once you start habitually entering that doorway, it becomes that door becomes easier and easier to open.
0: You know? I mean, it's incredibly intriguing and attractive and... Probably not going to land it right now, but I do think... Well,
1: I, you already yeah. have a meditation practice. Yes. So it's just a matter of um, just kind of reminding yourself that it's not just about the awareness. Yep. It's also about the connectedness, and it's about the care. It's, it's about the warmth.
0: Yeah, I think I just need the little phrase that gets me in that door.
1: Yes, exactly. And and what that phrase is, you know, only you know, really.
0: No, but it's a great thing to think about and explore. There are two questions I want to ask before I go, both of which can be short if you want, Um, but that's up to you. One of them is, is there something I should have asked but didn't?
1: We covered a lot of ground, didn't we? I think think we're okay. I think we we covered a broad range of it. Cool.
0: Then the final question is, uh, I always do this kind of semi-facetious thing at the end, which is ask people to uh, step into what I call the plug zone. Can you unabashedly plug – and I'm giving you permission here yes. to plug everything, all the resources that are out there, yeah. where you are on social media, blah, 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 again.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I can because, like I said, basically the last 10 years of my life with my colleague Chris Germer, we've been developing the technology. He's from Duke, right? no, He's actually connected with Harvard. Harvard, okay. He's in Boston. But um, we've been developing the technology of how to teach self-compassion. It's not just a good idea. We know the technology, the pedagogy of how to help people be more self-compassionate. And it's it was you know developed in the Mindful Self Compassion program, uh, and it's taught all over the world. You could either go to the center for MSC and find a teacher, you can take it online. But the cool thing is our workbook just came out in August. Uh, it's a, it's a, it was a number one bestseller, um, but the workbook has it all in there. And It's only like you know fifteen bucks or something, and actually it's, it guides you through in the sequence, and it has helps you do all the practices safely. It's a very accessible way to access these practices, the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook. And, you know, a year ago, that wouldn't have been available. You would have just had to have someone in your area. You would have had to spend a lot more time and money to learn the practices. Um, And now it's just one click away. Cool.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And your website, again, is
1: SelfCompassion? org. yeah.
0: And do you have a Twitter or Instagram or anything like that? I,
1: I do have a Twitter. I, I have someone who tweets for me. I, I'm embarrassed to say I don't remember what <laughs> the Twitter handle is.
0: No, I think that's a badge of honor. That, that, <laughs> I shame. can send
1: it to you. I um, also have Facebook. But probably the, the easiest way place to go is if you just Google SelfCompassion because I've got I've got videos. I've got a TED Talk. I've got, you can take your own self-compassion, you can test your own self-compassion level with the scale. I've got, uh, for those of you science nerds listening, I've got the original PDFs of probably like well over a thousand articles, research on self-compassion, organized by category. I put a lot of work into this to try to facilitate the research. So if you want to know what's been done with self-compassion and body image issues, I've got a section on self-compassion and body image with all the original PDFs of the scientific articles. So if you're a scientist, that's a place to go. If you want to use the scale in research, if you want to take the scale, if I've got practices, guided meditations, written exercises. It's kind of I've tried to design it as a one stop shopping, so to speak. So if anyone's interested, they can find that resource.
0: You did a great job with this. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's my um, kind and friendly voice. At least I'm okay. directing it to you. Yes. I'll learn how to do it to myself at some point. Yes. Thank okay, you again. great.
1: You're welcome. You're welcome.
0: Big thanks to Kristen. Big thanks, as always, to the team who worked so hard to make this show a reality. Samuel Johns is our senior producer. DJ Kashmir is our producer. Jules Dodson is our AP. Our sound designer is Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Maria Wortel is our production coordinator. We get an enormous amount of insight and input from our TPH colleagues, uh, such as Jen Poyant, Nate Toby, Ben Rubin, and Liz Levin. And, of course, as always, a big thank you to my ABC News comrades, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus.